hear the word of the Lord from uh, the prophet Isaiah and reading in chapter 43, verses 8 to 13. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn back? A uh, critical uh, identity of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, certainly Grace Bible Church, is that we are to be uh, witnesses of uh, the one true God. And not just witnesses, of course, faithful witnesses. Uh, God has appointed us uh, to witness of his presence in the world in which we live, not just in in the act of witnessing, but just as critically in the content of what we uh, witness to. Uh, it's very instructive uh, uh, contextually to that end because uh, Israel is soon going to be kicked out of the land of milk and honey and taken into the Babylonian captivity because they were unfaithful witnesses to the glory of God. They bore false witness because of their idolatry. And it's a reminder for us as a church, we're to be true witnesses, uh, not only in act and in content. Well, our text begins as a summons to witnesses to come. It's, in many respects, it's a court scene, not unlike some other uh, passages that we have studied. Uh, God makes a summons uh, for witnesses to come into his presence and to predict the future. Uh, we know here uh, that there's a challenge, uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, to idolaters uh, to come and to predict the future. Uh, we know that it's a summons to idolaters because uh, they are blind and deaf, even though they have eyes and ears. And that's a reference, again, uh, to the outcome of the transformation that occurs in one who has served a false god because people become like the gods that they serve. Idols have eyes and ears, but they cannot see or hear. And so the summons here, again, is to idolaters. It's also summons to the nations. And of course, uh, the nations in the, the days of the prophet Isaiah uh, were given over wholesale to idolatry because they all had their pantheon of false gods. Uh, so uh, God summons idolaters uh, to come and to predict the future. 
again, particularly the reference contextually, is forward-looking as to the release of uh, the nation of Israel from Babylon in a second exodus. So what's the, court, what's the outcome of the summons for witnesses to come? Well, no one comes forward. There are no witnesses who can declare the future, who can proclaim what God is going to do in the future. And so the court is silent. No witnesses come forward. The idols and their followers are unable to predict the future. Very interesting to me in terms of our own culture, uh, we all want to know the future. I, uh, even though in many respects, I'm glad we don't. Uh, a broad scope, I'm going to tell you the future in a moment. Uh, but you see more and more popping up all over Oklahoma City, uh, fortune tellers, uh, occasionally appeals to uh, astrology, uh, someone who can divine what's going to happen, uh, people seeking out strange religious experiences that they might know the future, uh, making a pilgrimage uh, to some pagan place that uh, the free wildlife of nature might disclose to them uh, what is going to happen. But they're all false. They cannot predict the future. There's an illustration of this, uh, of course, in the scripture. If you have your Old Testament, I trust you do, turn to uh, the book of uh, Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, has a dream, and he wants his dream interpreted. Uh, he's troubled because he knows intuitively that the dream is about the future, and he's troubled because he sees maybe the future slipping away from him. He was the emperor of the uh, known world of his day. He had incredible power, but like all men of power, he's uh, uh, somewhat troubled about the future. And so he summons... Uh, his experts who could divine the future. Uh, they could go to their libraries and get their books of dreams and disclose uh, uh, the interpretation of his dream and tell him about the future. The problem is Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I don't want you to just interpret my dream. I want you to tell me what the dream is. Uh, his magicians and conjurers and sorcerers are all summoned. And worse than that, Nebuchadnezzar says, if you fail you're going to die. So it's an extreme challenge. Uh, represents a challenge for uh, Daniel because he's caught up in the intrigue, because he is part of that company, even though he is a child of the faith. Uh, interestingly enough, there's a parallel to this entire event in uh, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 41. Pharaoh has a dream. And he calls his court together and says, interpret my dream for him, but his court is silent. Just like the court of Nebuchadnezzar is silent, they cannot predict the future. They are unable to look into the future and divine uh, what is about to occur and what is going to occur. It's a reminder of what? To the children of Israel, as well as to us. The gods of Egypt and the gods of Babylon are totally unable to predict the future. They cannot empower the future, and they are utterly impotent respecting the future. 
Again, these uh, men were studied in the magical arts, but they are now impotent to tell the most powerful men of their day what the future held for them. And by the way, so is, so is the fortune teller in our own culture. So is it for those who appeal to astrology or go to divine the future. It's all a sham. It's all a ruse. The false gods cannot predict the future, much less empower it. There's only one God that can do that. And in this case, uh, not only uh, Joseph, but Daniel as well, declare their inability to predict or empower the future. But they know the God who does and who can. The God who foreordains everything that comes to pass. Let's be reminded of this. Uh, it's remarkable to me, these great men of God who are caught in the court of Gentiles who are being asked to proclaim the future and they declare their inability as well. Genesis chapter 41 and verse 16. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Daniel says, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men. Notice, he is the one giving wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who re reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee. So both of these men in the court of Gentile kings disclaim their abilities and lay it all at the hand of the great God of heaven. That he is able to affect his decrees because he is sovereign and he purposes all things. These, these lessons, of course, are, were not to be lost upon the children of Israel. To, to remind them in captivity that they are there because they have been unfaithful witnesses. And they are reminded of who the God is that they were to witness to and to serve and to worship. So again, that's the summons to the idolaters of uh, the world, uh, the imposters, the false gods. They're asked to predict the future, and they're silent. And so now we turn to God's true witnesses. And not just his true witnesses, but the content of their witness. God interrupts the silence in the courtroom with witnesses of his own sovereignty, verses 10 to 13. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 10, there's a reference to witnesses, plural, and then a servant in the singular. Now, I struggled over that because who's the singular servant? Well, again, it could be a collective uh, witness of uh, the nation. It uh, could also be a great a reference to the great servant son, the singular uh, messianic king, uh, reference to Christ. Uh, 
Regardless, uh, the reference is uh, to true Israel that has kept itself from idols. Again, if you look at verse 12, there's a reference to that. There was no strange God among you. Uh, So there is a summons to witnesses who will come forward who are not idolaters, to true Israel that has kept itself for the worship of the one true God. We need to understand in all of the Old Testament, there's always a true Israel within Israel. For example, the days of the prophet Isaiah, Elijah, he got discouraged and depressed one day, did he not? Until God had reminded him, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I don't know that that's a literal number, certainly a complete number of the perfections of God. God always has his own. And so the summons here is to the court, to true witnesses come forward and speak and tell the future and declare my majesty and my power. Let's look at what God says of his, uh, of his servant uh, who has kept itself from idols. Uh, God says first that he, he has uh, chosen his servant, verse 10. Chosen his servant. Reference to the doctrine of God's sovereign choice and election. We oftentimes think, It's true to a degree that we choose God. Of course, we do choose God. But only because God chooses us first. And God chooses his servants who have kept themselves from idol. But notice it's also purposeful in verse 10. In order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. The content, if you will, of the witness of the true servant that has kept himself from idols. It's my reminder to you with respect to our knowledge of God and what we know about God is we owe our faith and everything we know about the one true God to our election. I I also draw your attention to something that I think is very essential for our own culture. And that is the reality that knowledge is a true component of key faith. Knowledge is a true component of true faith. I say that because in our culture we are rapidly slipping into subjectivism and mysticism. But the true servant of God, the true witness of God, has a knowledge of God. Of course, the the countervailing forces to mysticism and subjectivism is the scriptures. Uh, We are a bit different from Daniel. We have the scripture. He had a part of it. We have all of it in the canon of scripture where God reveals himself that we might know him by his self-revelation in the word of God. There, God not only gives us the knowledge, but he makes himself known in the power of the Holy Spirit and enables us to know him. And absent the knowledge of God, we will cease to be true witnesses. There's always been this ongoing debate in the church about the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and really, whether Scripture is the Word of God, imagine that argument, that debate in the, in the church. 
But that's the way that it is. There's always a true church within the church. And the true church holds fast to the word of God and what scripture speaks, God speaks. And as God speaks, scripture speaks. Again, it's a reminder to Israel. Why are they in captivity? Why are they going to captivity? Because they have left the word of God and followed the idols of their age. And they have violated their calling as true witnesses of God. And so God challenges the court again and true witnesses come forward that have kept themselves from idols. A specific aspect of the knowledge of God that is present here, again, that is a polemic against idolatry. And God's servants witness against idolatry. The prophet is connecting us with the truth that there is but one God and one only. Let's look again at the latter part of the 10th verse. And understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, and there was none after me. The, ref- the reference here identifies the timeless existence of God, meaning that he's the only God, and every other God is manifestly false. Our God is timeless in his existence, either without beginning or ending. There is no interruption of his existence. He self-exists in that he owes his existence solely and entirely to himself, meaning that he is the only God. As such, he is the only independent being in the entire universe. And by application, everything is impermanent but him. Reminds me, if you will, of uh, the great text that begins our study, Prophecy of Isaiah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Everything is impermanent. All flesh is as grass the prophet says, but the word of God is permanent, eternal, existing forever. And again, that constitutes a measure of the content of what is true witness of the one true living God. Israel had forgotten this, and that's why they're going into captivity. Let me give you an earlier reference to what they have forgotten. Deuteronomy chapter 32 the 29th verse, Moses speaks to the majesty of God that we must all hold dear in our hearts to keep us from idols. Deuteronomy 32, and the 20, pardon me, the 39th verse. See now that I am he. It's very likely, by the way, that the prophet Isaiah is alluding to Moses in Deuteronomy, because he uses this phrase, I am he, meaning that he alone, solely and uniquely, is God. And there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. True witnesses uphold the content of that text that there is but one God and one only. It is here that God rejects all claims to deity save his. He declares the folly of following false gods, for they do not and cannot deliver. 
It is our reminder that he brooks no divided loyalties. Again, the content of true witnesses is that God alone is God and only he can deliver and make alive. And by the way, he causes death. He's going to take the nation into captivity and destruction in the chaos of the Babylonian captivity because they have been unfaithful witnesses of his glory and the solitariness of his perfections. Secondly, as God, only he can save. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. There is no Savior besides me. It's a witness of his ability to affect restoration. It's a reminder of all the false gods of the world in which we live, all of the false religions, all of them, spare none, cannot deliver. Only God delivers. I, mean, I understand that's difficult, but it's not my words, it's the words of the living God. He alone delivers. He alone can save. He alone sets free. He excludes, God excludes with emphatic certainty the prospect of any deliverance whatsoever apart from himself. There is no pantheon. There is no sharing of the accomplishment. There is no cultural sensitivity. There are no other names, and this is no anachronism. This is the emphatic declaration of what a true witness believes and holds fast text that I've uh, recited on occasion in our study of uh, the prophet Isaiah is uh, lad of the words of uh, the apostle Luke in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There is no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. The apostle is ransacking every shelf of every religion and tearing them all down because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There is but one name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, and the one true God of heaven. In all of the annals of time, there is no one who has ever been saved apart from God and the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit who so applies. Not everyone is saved, to be sure, but if anyone ever is, it is in this way and by this God. Again, that is what the true witness of God is to hold, not only in act and in content. Confirmation of the clarity of this is found in the following verse, in verse 12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed that there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. It is as if God is logically hammering the nail on the coffin of every faith except the faith of the scripture and shoving them to the bin of destruction, the ashes of history. It, it, it's a powerful statement from the standpoint of the children of Israel who are soon going to be in captivity 
because the Babylonians are going to tell them you're in captivity because our gods are stronger than yours. Isaiah is reminding them that that's not so. All of the world today, we, we have this childish argument uh, uh, my God is better than yours. Well, there is no better, there's no comparative, comparative to be made uh, because there are no other gods save the one true God of Scripture who not only declares the future but who is able by his power to implement it. Uh, here, of course, is this wonderful reminder that God removes strange gods from his people. He makes them witnesses, the content of which solely and entirely him. There can be no doubt as to the identity and cause of action as uniquely his prerogative. Let's look at a solitary perfections of God witnessed from the book of the Revelation. The Apostle John speaks of witness in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, the fifth verse, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The prophet Isaiah is summoning, summoning to his court faithful witnesses, and now we know that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He has not compromised his faith. He is the firstborn of the dead, meaning that he has conquered death. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, John says. That every, every aspect of civil government is subordinate to him. He rules the kings of the earth. Of him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. The chiefly faithful witness is constituted by the fact of Jesus Christ who has released us from our sins by his blood. And so now we know the fullness of the reality of what it means of God affecting deliverance for his people. Namely, it occurs by the blood of Jesus Christ shed the one for the many. Think about it. All of the religions of the world are summons to the courtroom of God. They are totally silent because they are totally in, impotent and they're really non-entities. But what other religion conquers death save the Christian faith? That Christ stood among men as the resurrected Savior, as a witness to us of his faithful witness and service to God the Father. He's the faithful witness. Revelation chapter 3. Fourteenth uh, verse. And to the angel in the church of Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the beginning of the creation, meaning that he is the new creator. He creates his church by his sovereign power and by his sovereign word. That is true witness. By the way, application, it's important for us to recognize that it's the church of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses in the courtroom of God. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, something of our commission, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest 
parts of the earth constitutes our identity in Grace Bible Church. We are witnesses of God, and the content is everything that the prophet Isaiah has been declaring, that he is the one true God, there is no other God. All of the gods of the world are impotent and totally unable to predict the future, much less make things happen. Lastly, of course, uh, uh, the witness of God and the content of the witness of God, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 13, is that God is sovereign. Our God is a sovereign God. He brooks no competitors because there are no competitors. There's only one sovereign God, and that is the God of Scripture. Isaiah 43, 13, even from eternity, I am he, and there's no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? The attribute of, uh, of, of God here is, uh, is the exercise of his supremacy. I, I, I have some affinity for the constitutional monarchy of the United Kingdom. I don't know why. Maybe it's the entrapments of the beauty and the glory of the queen. Uh, but she really has no power. Our God not only has title, he has the power to go with it. He's the titular head of everything and everyone and it's not just a title, he's able to affect his will at any point and at any time and at any place because he is sovereign. His will is supreme and he's entirely able to execute and implement it for his power is absolute and unlimited. No one can reverse when God acts. You think about that in terms of those of you who are in the workplace, wherever that workplace may be. Someone uh, wants to implement a decision and then automatically there's people in the office who, who nah, I, I heard that, but I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna try to undermine that. Isn't that what's happening in our own country today? Guy makes a decision, everyone wants to undermine it and make it go away. That doesn't happen with the God of heaven. There's no one who can undermine him. There's no one who can get in his way or stop him and, and even question him and say, what do you think you're doing? No, he's the one true God. He acts freely and independently, and no one can get in his way or stay his hand. Nothing is able to stop him. By the way, I, I told you earlier that I was going to tell you the future, tell you the future, because the Bible tells you the future. In the dream narrative of uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, are there witnesses that can declare the future? Daniel's going to do that because God reveals it to him. Uh, it's not just Daniel's future, not just the future of the children of Israel. It's our future. Daniel chapter 2. Uh, the dream, perhaps as you recall, was of four successive world powers. Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and Rome. There's another kingdom mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. Let's look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and verses 45. 
This is the future. I've just told you the past. These were four kingdoms proclaimed by the prophet Daniel. They came to pass. They all ran their course, and they were all destroyed. So what about the future? And in the days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Jesus alludes to Daniel chapter 2 in the verses that I have just read, along with a citation from Psalm 118 in verse 22, in Matthew chapter 21, in verses 43 and 44. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it, namely true witnesses because of false witness. And who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So that Christ is identifying himself as the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and verse 45. It's a true witness of the future that's already begun in Jesus. That he will destroy every, every kingdom of man. And his kingdom will prevail. And the sons of his kingdom will prevail with him. That Daniel chapter 2 and verses 44 and 45 is fulfilled by Christ and in Christ. And his kingdom will prevail against all earthly kingdoms and everything outside of him will be destroyed. That's the future. Everything outside of Christ will be destroyed. So that the reality for us in the gospel is that there's no safety from him. There's only safety in him. The rock who is Christ will smash every earthly kingdom and prevail and be victorious. So, you now know the future of the history of civilization and the course it will take and who will bring it to pass and the ability of him who is able to affect it, namely Christ. We know he's a true witness because he's already conquered death, and who's ever conquered death is certainly able to bring every earthly kingdom to total ruin and establish himself as the one true great mountain of the glory and the majesty of God. Christ, the rock made without hands who will destroy every earthly kingdom. This is the witness. You are only safe in him and never from him. Our, uh, our text has called witnesses from all of the religions of the world to come forward to predict the future. Uh, the gods of Egypt fail. The gods of Babylon fail. They're all silent. Christ is the one true faithful witness he is the true Israel, and all who are in him are now his witnesses, and 
we are as the church of Jesus Christ to constitute faithful witness, not just in act, but in content. Remember a number of years ago, uh, an acquaintance uh, that I knew from uh, my son's uh, schoolwork uh, called me and asked me to join ecumenical movement. Fairly popular in our culture today. Uh, ecumenical movements where Christian pastors uh, sit down with Muslim pastors and Jewish rabbis and I don't know, sprinkle in any other religion in the world. Hindus, Lord Krishna, I don't know, name them all. I mean, it's just kind of a feel-good type of thing, isn't it? I mean, let's sit down and let's reason together. Problem with that is, is they're all false, save the one true God. There is no Lord Krishna. There is the Lord God. A couple weeks ago, I was in the Czech Republic, and I was watching these strange-looking guys marching down the street, and police were in front of them. They were banging on big drums and dressed in robes, and I thought, what, what is this? And then one of them stopped me and wanted to give me divine energy from Lord Krishna. Forget that. I know the Lord Christ. There is no divine energy except that which comes from him and his power. And he's already told me the future, and I know he's able to affect it by the fact that he's the firstborn of the dead. But that's the way of the world, is it not? Every religion has a seat at the table. That may be the voice of our culture, but it's a lie. There is but one witness of the one true God, and that is the God of Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of his followers are to witness to him and to him alone. And so I told my friend, no thanks. I can't sit with, uh, with other religions. Uh, because there's only one divine counsel, is there not? That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What other counsel is there? What else could I witness to? Uh, by the way, it's my duty even to tell many of my professing Christian friends that not even Mary is a part of that counsel. There is but Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We're to witness to him, him alone, and about him, and about him alone. That, my friend, ought to constitute the critical identity of Grace Bible Church. There's but one God and one Savior the God of Scripture that witnesses to Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of God's elect. I think in an encapsulated form, the Westminster Shorter Catechism as a confession of faith of the Presbyterian Church asks a decisive question. Are there more gods than one? You should know the answer. There is but one only, the living and true God. Let that be our witness.
and acted in content. There is but one only, the living and true God. And may God bless our witness to that end and for the glory of Christ in the world in which we live, world without end. Amen.